The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be discussing the issue of social mobility in Indonesia. Moving up the social ladder is a clear aspiration for many Indonesians. Public opinion surveys show a large proportion of those who self-identify as being in the bottom two income quintiles now predict they will have moved on within five years. But what are the prospects for young Indonesians today, as they and their peers become better educated and stand to live longer? And what social change are we seeing as important demographic characteristics of Indonesia's population shift? To discuss these questions, I'm joined today by my University of Melbourne colleague, Dr. Ariane Utomo, a social demographer in the School of Geography. Ariane, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. My pleasure. And a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking, when people talk about Indonesia's population at present, we often hear it said that Indonesia has a demographic dividend in prospect. What exactly does that mean? Well, the demographic dividend refers to a window of opportunity for faster economic growth that opens up because of the changing age structure in a particular region or a particular country. In the case of Indonesia, when people talk about demographic dividend, they are referring to the current age structure where we have a larger proportion of working age population, that's people aged between 15 to 64, relative to the young and the elderly dependents. So children aged below 15 and the elderly aged 65 and over. So in other words, Indonesia is currently approaching a point in its demographic timeline whereby the age dependency ratio is at its lowest, at its lowest relative to what it had been in the past and where it will be heading in the future. So this is made possible by declining patterns of fertility and mortality in the past decades. What difference does it make to the sorts of jobs that people are doing that you have such a large working age population in Indonesia at present? I'm quite critical of the whole concept of demographic dividend as it's being presently discussed in Indonesia, actually. And for me, much of my argument rests with the idea that the arrival of this demographic window of opportunity coincides with a very different sets of labour market and economic condition compared to what had happened in the way that the demographic dividend had unfolded in places like South Korea and East Asia in the past. So we have this large group of educated young Indonesians, and they come into the labour market at a time where we are seeing a a much tougher uh, competition to secure meaningful, uh, stable, upward mobility enabling jobs in the formal sector. And I guess you're familiar with the whole issue of premature deindustrialization and the changing nature of work. So that I, I think that the landscape of getting a job, uh, a good job that is, is quite challenging for this particular cohort of young people in Indonesia. You perhaps overestimated my knowledge in saying uh, I'm, I'm quite familiar with premature deindustrialization. Perhaps you could talk us through 
how that has played out in Indonesia. Okay, so in my understanding, premature deindustrialization is used to describe the way that certain economies, particularly those in global south, in the middle income and developing nations, have experienced a different path of a structural change in their employment structure. So typically in the past, you would expect that the share of population working in agriculture would decline, followed by an increase in employment in manufacturing, and then finally moving on to service. But in Indonesia, we didn't really see a sizable increase in the proportion of workers employed in manufacturing. We did see a little bit, but not as much as it would have been under like a typical structural change patterns. So what has happened in Indonesia is that a lot of people shift directly uh, from agriculture to service. So we have moved on to a service economy without having properly industrialize. What are the implications for the workforce? When you have a lot of opportunities in manufacturing, it enables the absorption of quite a lot of workers, millions of young people who I imagine would be graduating from a vocational high school or high school. Without having this large manufacturing. Of course, there are other jobs in the service sector, but the ability to absorb this abundance of educated young people is going to be limited. And I mean, when we talk about educated young people in Indonesia, what level of education are you referring to? Is it people who have finished high school vocational training? Are these university graduates? What is their educational profile? Yeah, well, when I talk about educated young people, I generally refer to both because we've seen a tremendous increase in the education attainment of young people in Indonesia since 1962 to now. So we have seen an increase in the share of young people with senior high school and vocational high school, as well as young people with tertiary education. But at the moment, there are more young people, of course, with upper secondary qualification than there are tertiary educated. But the manufacturing sectors had had traditionally been the sector where senior high school or vocational high school people, graduates, would look for work. So, I mean, at present, these people finishing senior high school some finishing university, uh, are manufacturing jobs what they're aspiring to? Are they aspiring to jobs in the service sector? What would they like to... I guess it's quite different Hmm. for senior high school graduates and tertiary graduates. My field research had indicated that many university graduates would aspire to work in the white-collar formal sector employment. So I guess... The data that I have is pretty dated. The last time I surveyed university students was in 2004. And the kinds of jobs that senior university students are aspiring for are quite different depending on where they are situated. So, for example, in Makassar, most of my respondents aspire to become civil service. Whereas in Jakarta, most of the respondents uh, aspire to become managers in multinational corporation. Yeah. What about for high school graduates? The data that I had from the Greater Jakarta Transition to Adulthood Survey is quite specific to young adults in Greater Jakarta. 
we didn't ask question about uh, what would you like to be, but we were asking about their current occupation at the time of the survey. And most young people, uh, not most, but a lot of young people were working in manufacturing. Uh, a lot of them were also working in quite precarious occupations. Uh, for example, um, they would write the word ojek drivers. Which is a motorcycle taxi. Motorcycle taxi. This was in 2010. And the proportion, I noticed slightly that the, the proportion of young adults working as motorcycle taxi driver or Gojek driver had increased in the second round of the survey in the 2015. I mean, you, you have this variety of aspirations from civil service work, formal sector work and, and sort of other occupations. I mean, overall, are job seekers finding the jobs that they want as they finish education in Indonesia or, or is there a problem there? Well, we do have quite a relatively high levels of youth unemployment uh, in the region anyway compared to other countries in Southeast Asia. And there are also reports of how young people are finding it quite challenging to secure their first job. What we are seeing now is, of course, it may not be as hard to get a job, but it's much more difficult to get uh, financially rewarding and stable employment than it had been perhaps in the past where the competition, I imagine, would not be as intense as it would be in this present day. Uh, I guess, you know, that's consistent with, if you think back to the presidential election campaign earlier this year, jobs seemed to be a big issue. It's a key pledge for the challenges, Prabowo Subianto and Sandiaga Uno, who seem to be pledging to be able to create more jobs. You had things like this pre-employment card from the Jokowi camp. What role can the government play in addressing youth in unemployment, addressing the difficulty in, in finding financially rewarding jobs? Is this a role for the state? I think the state has responded quite well to the best of their ability. It is very hard to tackle this issue of making sure that there are a corresponding number of decent work to welcome all, uh, all of these highly educated or newly skilled young adults in the labor market. So much of the strategy that we have witnessed so far have focused on the labor supply side. So we've seen policy uh, narratives around skilling, around investing in human capital, making sure that the quality of vocational high school or senior high school tertiary educated students are really at par with their counterparts in other parts of the world. So I think skilling is important, um, skilling is good, but I don't think it's enough to help young adults today navigate the challenging landscape of the changing nature of work. I think the government's doing their best, but it's quite difficult to address what's been happening in the labor demand side. How do you create employment in this day and age where we are witnessing such profound changes in the way the global economy is functioning in terms of generating jobs in the labor market? We are getting familiar with uh, phrases that talk about generation jobless, uh, 
wage stagnation and those kind of uh, phrases when we talk about labor market in places like Australia. So this is not something that is unique to Indonesia. It's it's, it's a global challenge and everybody's still trying to figure out how do we best address this issue of changing nature of work. We've seen increase in automation more gig economy, more precarious and vulnerable employment. And unfortunately for Indonesia, this significant change in the nature of work coincides with the arrival of the demographic dividend. Mm. So I'm actually quite pessimistic as to how this demographic window of opportunity would actually translate to faster economic growth in the next 10 years. In practice, what do we see this large cohort of young who are unemployed or or working jobs that are not financially rewarding? How are they responding to the circumstances that they find themselves in? Well, I find it quite surprising because in light of all these challenges, you've got this high levels of inequality currently in Indonesia. You also have a persistently large informal sector employment. You have the arrival of this so-called digital gig economy, which has been helpful in absorbing this abundance of labor for the time being. I'm actually quite surprised that we don't see people being, how should I say it, being angry, I guess, of, of the situation. They're much more accepting and they're generally quite happy of how things are going. That's an interesting point that you're not seeing the sort of disaffection that you might expect you know, with this shift to more precarious employment. When you say the digital gig economy, I assume you're meaning things like being an online taxi driver, online delivery driver, companies like Gojek, Grab Taxi and the like. Is that because these digital gig economy jobs in an Indonesian context are actually quite favourable in their working conditions compared to what was available before the gig economy emerged? Well, before companies like Gojek and Grab came uh, in Indonesia, we've always had a relatively large informal sector. So I guess working as a Gojek driver or as a, in Go Massage, uh, as a Go Life independent cr- contractors might be seen as better for many segments of the young workers because of the impression that these are formal sector jobs. But, you know, they are formal sector in a way that it allows governments, for for example, to raise taxes from these kind of occupations. But the nature of the work itself shares a lot of parallels with the quality of informal sector jobs in the sense that they are a lot more precarious. There's no, for example, leave allocations as you would in a typical uh, white-collar formal sector employment and blue-collar as well. When you say informal sector, you, you basically mean working for yourself rather than working for a company. Is that right? Yeah, working for yourself as uh, self-employed or working for other people in informal businesses. So, for example, helping to sell sate on the side of the road, that kind of thing. And, I mean, if a lot of young educated Indonesians are ending up in these gig 
economy jobs, which maybe a formal sector look a lot like informal sector jobs. Does that mean that education really isn't proving a reliable pathway to social advancement to higher income in in present day Indonesia? The answer is, I don't think so, but I don't really know for sure. One thing that I'm pretty sure of is that education is still an important pathway for upward mobility. The reason why I'm saying that is that at the moment, maybe only about 25% of adults age 25 and over have high school education, right? And only about 9% of adults age 25 and over have post-secondary or tertiary qualifications. So the number might seem very large, but in terms of their proportion, they are still a minority in the whole population. So in the context of Indonesia, which is arguably a highly stratified society, I believe that finishing high school, finishing university remains an important identity markers to where you are standing in the community. But when you're asking whether it's a viable path for higher income, I would say it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It really depends on, I guess, your family situation. I would say that for a large number of young people, their education and their income prospect is still much better than what their parents have had in the past. But yeah, I really am not sure about what it's going to look like in the next 10, 20 years. Now, I mean, moving beyond just the question of employment, income and the like, I know you look more broadly at other social impacts of the change in the population structure in Indonesia, levels of education and the like. And for instance, I know you've done a lot of work on marriage and and patterns of marriage. I, I mean, what overall social change are we seeing as a result of having a much larger working age population in Indonesia with levels of education that that are increasing over time? Yeah, so... In the past 10 years, my research has looked at changing patterns in the timing and the nature of marriage. With demographic transition, what we are seeing is, of course, the tendency for young adults to delay their age at first marriage. And this is caused, for example, by higher levels of education and higher participation of women in in the labor force before uh, they enter their family formation years, I guess. Uh, We're also seeing a lot more marriage now being, if I could say, self-choice in nature as opposed to being purely arranged. We're seeing that parental agreement, parental support in who one would marry to remains important, but there's a lot more individual agency in deciding who they would get. Uh, married to. Uh, We're also looking at uh, changing patterns in who marries whom. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of Siti Nurbaya. Uh, Please enlighten me. (laughs) So Siti Nurbaya is this classic novel that was written in the 20s in Indonesia. But when I was much younger, when I was, I grew up in Jakarta 
and Siti Nurbaya was adopted into a mini-series and it was a much-anticipated time in our family to wait for this sinetron, for this mini-series to be broadcasted. Siti Nurbaya tells a story of this girl, Siti Nurbaya, and how she was forced to marry someone who is much older. He's actually an old loan shark, and his name is Datuk Maringi. And in the process, she had to say goodbye to her lover, Samsul Bahri. So it's a kind of like a sad romance, a story of unrealized love. But it really tells you the dynamic of marriage and society in that particular point in time, in that Siti Nurbaya's father had forced her to marry someone who is much older than her. And we've gone so far from that particular point in history, right? If you look in Indonesia today, marriage has changed because women's role and opportunities have changed. Uh, For example, women are more likely to marry someone whose age gap is not as high as they did in the past. They're more likely to marry someone with the same level of education. They're actually increasing proportion of women who marry down um, in education. And I mean, when you say we've seen an increase in self-choice, is it possible to put an approximate number on that? And, you know, while I'm sure there's no single way that couples meet each other in Indonesia. I I mean, what context would people be coming together and and deciding to get married in current day Indonesia? Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it? The use of the the word self-choice. Because when you think of the phrase self-choice marriage, you would think that an individual would have a 100% 100% control mm. of their boyfriend, girlfriend, or their spouse. But what my research had indicated is this is an odd concept to use to describe marriage patterns in Indonesia. When individuals say self-choice, my marriage was a love marriage, most of the time, particularly for the educated young people, so people with tertiary education, they still say that their parents' blessing, their parents' support for that choice of romantic partner remains quite important. So what we're seeing is this so-called in-between marriage, you know, in-between arranged marriage on the one extreme and the kind of purely self-choice marriage that you one would imagine is the norm in places like Australia. Okay, so so what does that mean in practice? That the family still plays a role in introducing people or that couples would seek their parents' blessing very early in a relationship? Yeah, probably the later. Sure, sure. And, I mean, I understand from your research as well that, you know, obviously Indonesia's... Uh, highly multi-ethnic society, large majority Muslim country, that there's been historically an overwhelming preference to marry within ethnic group and within religion. Are we seeing change as we have more young adults who are more highly educated in those sorts of preferences? Yeah, the picture is quite mixed and it's really interesting actually. So I've done some research on patterns of who marries whom, by both religion and ethnicity. What we're seeing is that the more educated you are, the higher is the likelihood that you would marry someone from a different ethnic group. The younger you are, the more likely it is for you to marry someone from a different ethnic group. But when it comes to interreligious marriage, the picture 
is less clear. It's not always consistent. For example, looking at the census data, we cannot identify that many households whereby the husband and the wife would be enumerated under different religions. So the likelihood of being enumerated as having a different religion than your spouse was actually lower for the younger cohorts than the older cohorts. So people who were, let's say, were born in the 50s or earlier. So I guess on the one hand, it's tempting to say that this is because over time, perhaps because of the marriage law that was enacted in 1974, it became uh, harder institutionally to marry across religion. But I can't make that conclusion. I'm not comfortable with drawing that conclusion. And this is because of the common practice of premarital conversion. That is, because of that marriage law, couples from different religions would do this conversion and then it would make the process of their marriage easier than it would have been. So you're saying there's not really a clear trend on inter-religious marriages where in any case you have these four to five decade old obstacles in registering inter-religious marriages. But for inter-ethnic marriages, there is a breakdown in the in the preference to marry someone from the same ethnic group uh, as we see the population become more educated overall? Uh, to marry someone from a different, different ethnic, ethnic group. group. Yeah. 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 And is that because your young, educated Indonesian of today is much more likely to live in a city away from their family? Or is it a much more complicated process than that? I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But you could argue that schooling in itself may provide opportunities for uh, people from different places and different background interact from one another. And when I talk about different places, I'm not just talking about people from different ethnic groups, but uh, simply people from different kecamatan. Mm. So, for example, from my field research in a particular village in Gunung Kidul, you know, their concept of orang jauh, people from faraway land, or orang luar, an outsider, is really different to how you and I would conceptualize what an outsider would be. When I ask them, oh, what is orang jauh? What is orang luar? Oh, yeah, dari, dari luar desa, from another village. But the younger generation from that particular village who would go on to, let's say, senior high school, they would go to the senior high school in in the district level or in another district. And that would, I guess, help the process of meeting and encountering people from different places and backgrounds. I mean, it's, an, it's a really interesting process of social change. What about class, though? Have we historically seen marriage across class divisions in Indonesia? And are those sorts of marriages increasing as education and and perhaps social mobility overall increase? Yeah, it's quite hard to say because the only proxy for class that I have from nationally representative population data set would be education. But we do know there are more subtle markers of class in the case of Indonesia, that we cannot exactly pinpoint Mm. from population data sets. So my fieldwork and my qualitative research suggests that when speaking with young adults in places like Jakarta, is that 
they have very distinct marriage and dating markets between people in different groups of social class. I mean, could you illustrate that with some examples? You know, if, if you're working as a labourer in a factory, how how are you meeting a spouse, for example? Well, I imagine you wouldn't, if you are a labourer in a factory, you don't actually go out at a particular upscale mall in South Jakarta and strike a conversation with a girl sipping a cup of latte from Starbucks. I would imagine that the class boundary has actually strengthened over time. It could have been much more fluid in the past than it is now. In the past, for example, when you see uh, wedding invitations, I'm pretty sure you've received a couple of Indonesian wedding invitations. In the past, let's say in the 60s, 70s, it's quite common to see, for example, a doctor marrying a nurse. You know, these are the stereotypical marrying up by education. But you don't really see that nowadays. Mm. In the 90s, early 2000, people who put down their education qualification in their wedding invitations would tend to have similar level of education attainment. But much more recently, among the upper middle class anyway in urban Indonesia, because most people have at least a bachelor degree, there's an increasing practice of not <laughs> putting your degrees because everybody has that. It's, it's a cliche to put mm. one down. But I thought that was a really interesting anecdote on how people have different practices in giving signals of their social identities through their wedding invitations over time. So basically, does that mean for a young adult in Indonesia today, the social milieu you find yourself in at present, perhaps if you're a worker in the gig economy, uh, I guess firmly in the, what we say, lower middle class, that that social milieu is unlikely to shift much over the course of your life for, for most young Indonesians? Or, or are there real prospects of social advancement for many young Indonesians in, in Indonesia today? Well, if you talk about social advancement in terms of having a much better life outcomes than your parents did, sure, I'm pretty confident that it's going to be the case. However, when you talk about social advancement as the way that young people today would use the term pansos, panjat social. Meaning climbing up the social ladder. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I'm less optimistic. Mm. So there's, I'm seeing a good prospect in terms of an intergenerational mobility. Mm. But when it comes to advancement in one's particular lifetime from one social group to another, I think it's a a little bit more difficult now. Okay. And uh, uh, why is it more difficult now than what it has been in the past? I would imagine it's because the class structure might be more rigid. And this is also an idea that I have taken on from conversations with colleagues in the University of Melbourne, like Fedi Hadis, for example. We are seeing a new norm of high levels of wealth inequality. So although young people today are better off than their parents' generation, we do see quite a strenuous boundaries across social class in the current cohort.
Sure, sure. It's a it's a fascinating area of research, a, a fascinating development to follow in Indonesian society. Ariane, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great. Thank you. That was Dr. Ariano Tomo from the School of Geography in the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne. Talk Indonesia returns on 5 September with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, as always, you can catch up on the entire archive of Talk Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.